This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for you. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I hope you, uh, like me, have read the greatest novel of the, 21st, of the 20th century, The Lord of the Rings, and, and, and learn something of Jesus from that book. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo bears the world's burdens to Mount Doom in Mordor, an image of hell itself, and essentially volunteers his life as a sacrifice to remove the most horrible evil from the world. While he is doing that, Aragorn, the hidden king with healing in his hands, rides the paths of the dead and emerges victorious. And Gandalf, a visitor to Middle-earth from another world, read the Silmarillion for footnotes, battles the primordial demonic power to death and beyond. All are a bit like Jesus, but not quite. None of these three is quite a Christ figure. And it's uh, a testimony to Tolkien's devout Catholic faith that he moves cl as close as he can to saying, this is like Jesus, but not quite. He backs away. There are they have prophetic and priestly and kingly kinds of authority. Each one and others in Tolkien's epics, in Tolkien's epic, shows us a bit of what the death and resurrection of Jesus means, but none quite tell the whole story. In the passages we have been examining for the last weeks, Paul keeps uh, exploring the reality of both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he goes back and forth. Last week, Tish preached uh, an important sermon for us about the significance of the resurrection. But this week, we are back to the cross again as Paul looks at these intertwined realities of suffering and glory. And so, like a precious jewel, like a diamond, Paul holds up the cross and the resurrection and turns it this way and that way. And as he does, we see more and more of the glorious light shining forth from that story of the one who came to earth to live and die and live again for us. Today's lesson uh, does mention the resurrection a little bit, uh, although it focuses on the cross. Uh, Paul does say in verse 14, uh, 
the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the resurrection is part of even today's lesson. Uh, and he, he goes on later in the passage to talk about some of the implications of the resurrection. If we are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, he says. But notice we have a little bit of a problem with, with our English language in how this verse is translated. Uh, the, as it was read to us, it says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Some translations say, if anyone is in Christ, he, you know, most of these translations leave the she's out. I'm sorry about that. He is a new creation. But actually, the Greek has a broken grammar at that point. I think Paul is so overwhelmed with this idea of new creation that he simply leaves out the subject and the verb. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. New creation. The grammar is not enough to express the reality of what is happening in the risen Jesus and what will happen when God brings everything to completion. But the emphasis in this passage is not on the resurrection. The emphasis in the passage we read today and in the few verses just before it, the emphasis is on the cross. Uh, let me back up a little bit from what we read to verse 11, where Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to be proud of us so that you may be able to answer those who pride themselves on a person's position and not on the heart. We began the service with the collect for purity in which we acknowledge that God is the one before whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Everything is open to God. God knows all about us. He knows a word before it is on our lips. He knows a thought before it is in our minds. No matter what we do, God knows it completely. No matter where we go, God is there before we are. Read Psalm 139 sometime and meditate on the reality of that God who is beyond all our comprehension. But Paul goes on later in the passage, having begun with saying, we begin with the fear of God. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. He goes on later in verse 18 and says that this God reconciled us. Verse 18 says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So God knows everything about us. So that Paul can say, we preach from the fear of the Lord. 
Paul says we preach because we have to. Paul says we preach not commending ourselves, but we preach because we are compelled, because we have a message which must be heard, which demands to be heard. You see, it starts, preaching starts with the realization of the fear of God, that we are known by God, that who we are is plain to him. And this word that Paul says about God reconciling himself to us implies something that is almost unstated in this passage. If God reconciled us to himself, it means we needed to be reconciled. We needed reconciliation because we were in rebellion against God. We made ourselves, as Paul says in another place, God's enemies. Listen to Romans chapter 5. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is the story of humanity deciding to make themselves, to make ourselves judges over God. It is about deciding that I know what is good and what is evil rather than believing what God says about good and evil. So preaching, Paul says, is about human need, human folly, human sin. Again, from Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why? One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. The Bible proclaims that we are lost. And do we really need more proof of our lostness, our rebellion, our sinfulness than we have had this week? This week. A young black man was shot in the back and killed by policemen in our city. This week, images and stories of children torn from their parents at our southern border filled the news. And although politicians tried to make this about each other, the reality is that it's about families and children in Addis Ababa, at a rally to support a new prime minister who is doing an amazingly wonderful job, a rally in which there were many more than 100,000 people in the center of Addis Ababa in Mescal Square. Mescal means cross. It's a square named after the cross of Jesus. In Mescal Square, they were, people were rejoicing 
over what the prime minister has been able to do in the few, few short weeks he's been prime minister, and someone threw a hand grenade into the crowd, killing at least one person and injuring dozens of others. Wednesday was World Refugee Day, when we were reminded by the United Nations that there are now 68 million refugees in the world, fleeing violence, war, famine, fleeing failed states, gang violence, it goes on and on. I once had a theology professor, I, I didn't agree with much of what he told me, but I agreed with this. He once said that the depravity of human beings is the only theological doctrine for which we have empirical objective evidence. The sinfulness of humanity is portrayed to us every day in our lives and in the lives of people around us and the people uh, the lives of people far away and the uh, people who are near. He was right. The depravity of human beings has empirical, objective evidence. So from the human side, preaching, the preaching of the gospel is rooted in the undeniable fact of human sin and human need. But, but, from God's side, the message with which we are entrusted begins somewhere much deeper. Look at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Christ controls us. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. There is something deeper and older than our sin. And that is the love of God. And so Paul says, the love of Christ controls us, compels us, convicts us, dominates us. We have to preach this message. Not just because of human need, but because of God's love for the world. Now, there is a grammatical problem in verse 14. Sorry, uh, but it has to be noted. Verse 14 says, the love of Christ compels us or controls us. But does it mean our love for Christ... That would be an objective genitive. Or is it a subjective genitive? Christ's love for us. In the end, I think it is both. And maybe Paul is being deliberately ambiguous. But the verse goes on. The love of Christ compels us because one died for all. The loving action of Jesus in voluntarily giving his life on behalf of others is the ultimate expression of love. Our love for him is rooted in his loving action on our behalf. 
The first letter of John says it well. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or verse 19 of 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. Whatever else the cross is about, it is about the love of Christ for us poor sinners. It is about the love of God for his broken and rebellious creation. At this point, Paul goes a little crazy. At this point in our passage, it becomes what one scholar from the last generation called the most pregnant difficult and important in the whole of Pauline literature. And uh, it would take a whole semester to unpack everything in these few verses. So if you want, you can take Joel Skandrit's class on God the Son and allow him to try to unpack some of this for you. But let me just give you a few little bits, a few facets of the diamond that Paul is turning for us. First, as we've already seen, the cross effects reconciliation between God and humans. Let's be clear about this. We rebelled against God. We started this fight, but we are powerless to fix the mess. God reconciled himself to us. It is God's initiative, God's action which intervenes as one of the colics tells us, we have no strength in ourselves to help ourselves. Salvation, salvation will not come from our side, will not come from our effort, from our obedience, from our goodness. Rescue must come from outside of us. But the good news, Paul says, is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And therefore, in verse 20, Paul says, be reconciled to God. Notice the passive tense. Be reconciled. God is offering us this gift of reconciliation. He has done the work. He asks us to receive that reconciliation. And so he implores the Corinthians to be reconciled. Secondly, Paul talks about new creation. Now, we've already mentioned this, but it's worth just a little bit again. Because God the Creator is acting in Christ to reconcile the world. The result is no less than a new act of creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed the world. It's important to hear. Uh, verse 16, which has much to do with this, says, from now on, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, we regard him thus no longer. Jews in the first century expected a human Messiah, a military political leader who would come into Jerusalem and free them from their oppressors. You can read about this in a text called the Psalms of Solomon. It's not in the Bible. The Psalms of Solomon were written around the time of Jesus and they 
over and over again talk about this coming political Messiah who will break the heads of the enemies with a rod of iron. They wanted Jesus to come into Jerusalem and drain the swamp. They wanted Jesus to make Israel great again. This is what Paul means by regarding Christ from a human point of view. But what was needed was deeper and higher and broader because the story of the cross and the resurrection is not just about Israel. It's about all of humanity. And it's not just about politics. It's about the heart, the heart of every human being. And it's not just about human beings. It's about the whole world. And it's not just about the whole world, this earth. It's about the whole creation. The implication is that if we are in Christ, new creation. We are in that new creation if we are in Christ. We are in that resurrection. We are in this new thing that God has begun to do in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that he will bring to completion at the last day. The implication is that our lives can be completely made new. There's a story about St. Augustine. St. Augustine was from North Africa and he left. His mother wept on the beach in Tunisia as his son was leaving. She continued to plead with God for him that he would come to know the God who loved him. And when he got to Italy, he was converted and he was catechized by Ambrose and he was baptized and he came back to North Africa. And when he came back, his old girlfriend saw him. And she said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine said, but it is not I. Augustine was made new. He had become part of God's new creation. He was not the same person that he had been. The cross means the death of Israel's national hopes. It means the death of all human pride. It means the death of all that we thought we could do to help ourselves. You see, this cross is more precious to me than any gold or bejeweled cross could be because this cross says that God came into the world in which there are refugees, in which there is war and famine and hatred of every kind, and he submitted himself to our death on a cross. How did he do that? Well, verse 21 gives us a hint, although verse 21 could take a whole course in itself. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin. The cross is a sacrifice. 
In the Old Testament, when the people of Israel presented their sacrifices to make atonement for their sin, the sacrifice they presented had to be a spotless lamb. And as we sing and pray over and over again in our liturgy, Jesus is that spotless lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus went into hell for us, became a sacrifice for us. But the verse begins, he, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin. Uh, there are a number of ways to understand this. But I think at root, what we're talking about here is that the sinless one dies for us. He dies on our behalf, and he dies instead of us. He takes our place. Probably the, the, the clearest biblical picture of this is the story of Barabbas. Barabbas was a criminal, a political terrorist who was destined for the cross, and yet he goes free. And Jesus takes his place on the cross. I don't know if you know the story of Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe was a, uh, a Catholic priest, a monk, Polish, who ended up in Auschwitz during World War II. And at one point there was a break and a few people escaped from Auschwitz. And so in punishment, the guards decided that they were going to starve several of the people who are living in Auschwitz and going to starve them to death. Just take them apart and put them... So to deter people from crossing that line again. And so they chose a group of people at random and one of the men said, my family, my children. And Kolbe said, no, no, I will take his place. And so Kolbe took his place and slowly starved to death. He was the last one alive out of that group uh, so that finally the guards had to come and after many many days had to come and injection inject him with a lethal dose of poison to kill him he took that one's place greater love has no one than this jesus said that one would give his life for a friend there's a story, it might be apocryphal, I heard it many years ago, about a family, and the girl in the family uh, had a disease, a problem, and she needed a blood transfusion, and so they discovered that her brother was a match for her blood type, so they asked if he would be willing to donate some of his blood for his sister so that she wouldn't die. And he said, well, can I think about it? And they said, well, yeah, okay, but we need to know soon. We need to know by tomorrow. So the next day he said, yes, I will do it. And so they put him in a bed in the hospital and they got ready to take his blood so that they could then give his sister a transfusion. And as they were about to put the needle in his arm, he said, will I die right away? You see, he had misunderstood. He had thought that giving his blood for his sister meant that his sister would live and he would die. But that's what Jesus did for us. 
The world is broken. It is filled with uncaring, unjust structures. Everywhere. This is not just a so-called third world problem. Every country in the world has unjust structures and uncaring people. We are a people, we are a, a race filled with violence and hatred. But, Paul says in another letter, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has given Jesus for us. With Paul, I implore you today, be reconciled to God. Allow God to come into your heart and forgive you and remake your heart. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've done it many times. But as you come for communion today, as you hold out your hands and receive the bread, as you receive the cup, say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the cross on which you died for me and for the world. Let us pray. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the embodiment of the righteousness of God. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ you were reconciling the world to yourself and not counting our trespasses against us. Forgive us and send us into the world to be ambassadors, to be preachers of this reconciliation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.